Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. I hope you're all well. Patrick, how are you? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely fantastic. This week, we are still continuing on with the, the female series, um, but we do not have Nicola along with us, unfortunately. Fortunately, she is off gallivanting in some other foreign country. Uh, but... We do have a, a rather interesting topic to discuss today. So, Gary, what are we talking about today? Today, we're going to be talking about the spectrum of symptoms that a woman can experience uh, prior to slash during her period. So, premenstrual uh, syndrome and premenstrual dysphoric disorder. We have touched on these in um, a little bit of detail in some previous episodes when we've discussed menstrual cycle, but we wanted to have a kind of go-to place where you can understand the difference between some of the normal menstrual symptoms and some of the more uh, severe symptoms that can impact uh, women in some cases. 100%. And what is this uh, PMDD, right? Because I think a lot of people understand PMS, right? They're you know, in the media and whatever. People talk about PMS. Um, obviously, neither of us have had the, the lived experience of having PMS, um, so maybe touch on a little bit about PMS, but then go into that PMDD, because I don't think a lot of people are as aware in terms of the differences. Yeah, so I suppose like it's, it's useful to start when thinking about this with what are considered to be normal menstrual symptoms, because when you look at some studies on this topic, you'll see lots of inflation um, in premenstrual syndrome uh, diagnosis. And when you look at the, the kind of more rigid criteria, you see that about 80% or so, um, well, 80% or more, uh, will have normal menstrual symptoms. Okay, Most women will have some symptoms leading up to and or during um, their uh, period. So you'll have breast pain, bloating, headaches, irritability, fatigue. And generally, these types of symptoms are not going to significantly inter interfere with a woman's job, for example, or her ability to, you know, go outside, do the shopping, etc. So this is referred to as social or economic dysfunction. So a woman might have these symptoms, but it's not really interfering with her socially or economically. So that's the normal spectrum of symptoms. And Again, this is this is all a spectrum, so it's not like you know you suddenly transition from normal symptoms to premenstrual syndrome. There's big overlap, but one of the or a couple of the things that kind of differentiate premenstrual syndrome or PMS from normal menstrual symptoms would be that one or more of these symptoms that we've discussed, and there's a longer list of symptoms, um, would cause significant economic or social dysfunction, okay? And typically for at least three consecutive cycle, cycles, if you're going with more rigid diagnostic criteria. And when you use those criteria, you end up with about five to 8% of women that experience uh, premenstrual syndrome. So just to reiterate, one or more of those symptoms, let's say it's uh, let's say you've got severe bloating and abdominal cramping that causes you to miss work, for example, for a few days or a week, and that happens on three consecutive cycles, you'd be considered to have premenstrual syndrome. And that's been in the media a little bit lately. I think it was uh, Spain that introduced legis legislation for women with premenstrual syndrome um, that they would get paid time off, I believe. I'm not sure of the specifics, but that was kind of the gist of it. And I think... Uh, some people 
got a little bit confused about menstrual symptoms and premenstrual syndrome, because you could read that and think, oh, that means all women that experience symptoms suddenly get all these paid days off, when in fact, it's specifically these women with premenstrual syndrome, to my understanding anyway. So it's a little bit more severe. It's going to lead to a little bit more economic or social dysfunction for that woman. And it can be quite debilitating in some cases, okay? Uh, but at this severe end of the spectrum then, you've got what's referred to as premenstrual dysphoric disorder or PMDD. And this can be thought of as a severe uh, premenstrual syndrome, but specifically with more of a psychiatric element associated with it. Okay. So you're talking about here five or more symptoms, um, but one of those has to be an affective symptom, meaning one that's related to uh, your psychological state, your mood, etc. So for example, emotional ability, irritability, depression, or anxiety. Okay. So Typically, there might be a, there might be a mixed presentation between those uh, emotional factors, but overall, that has to be a feature along with five plus overall symptoms for someone to have premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Okay, so that's the extreme end of the spectrum. It's going to be a very small portion of the population. Estimates are around two percent um, of menstruating women are going to experience PMDD but it can be quite debilitating, debilitating and thus it's important to identify. Yeah, 100%. And obviously, look, neither of us have had these symptoms. So, you know, we might be, uh, as we coarse with our words when discussing this stuff, but it is important to understand that there is a difference. Like you said, it is a spectrum, right? It goes from the average every day. This is just what being a woman feels like, fortunately or unfortunately, you know? And then all the way to, like we're discussing here today, that PMDD, right? So you're going to, well, presumably at least, you're going to fall somewhere on that spectrum. You're going to be like, right, oh, my periods are, you know, perfectly fine, barely even notice it, like it's, it's, it's a non-issue, right? And then you're going to go all the way to, like, this is debilitating. And then you're going to go even further and go all the way to that, like, this is debilitating. There's that, like, psychiatric or psychological element, whatever you want to call it, to this. And it's like, this is very debilitating and you have to realize that it's not like the diagnostic criteria is not perfect it's not exactly like oh you have these two symptoms therefore this you have this and if you go this far along the spectrum you're going to have this it's messy you know it, it, there's no oh you have this one symptom and that's this other symptom is going to come along with that that's not the way this works you could have two or three of these symptoms over here have none of these symptoms over here and then this massive one that's really impactful over here. So it is messy. And unfortunately, that's just the way hormones are in the body. And a lot of this is hormonally driven, you know? So maybe Gary, you go into a little bit more depth in terms of like, what are the symptoms of PMDD? You know, what is someone going to experience, right? Maybe even contrast that with just a, you know, I say regular PMS. Like PMS obviously isn't that uh, regular if it's only what, what you say, like, 20% perhaps to realistically more of that four to 8% uh, of the population. So how do we contrast that with PMDD? What are the symptom differences, I suppose? Yeah. So I think one actually, one way of, of looking at this that's quite useful is considering that each like psychiatric diagnosis um, or mental health condition has its own physical manifestations as well. So for example, if you're, if you look at depression, like 
in, in its regular form, major depressive disorder. If you look at depression, you'll often see, you know, pain, for example, that people might have associated with that. They might have uh, changes in their appetite, changes in their gastrointestinal function. They might have fatigue, um, you know, differences in energy levels, difficulty sleeping, those types of things. So there's a number of physical symptoms that you might see associated with depression. If you look at generalized anxiety disorder, you see similar things. So someone with anxiety, they might have palpitations, you know, they might experience uh, sweating, they might uh, feel like they're, again, you can have appetite changes associated with that, headache, different types of symptoms that will be associated with anxiety, uh, shortness of breath, etc. If you take all of those um, experiences, uh, our physical symptoms that are raised to the psychiatric diagnosis themselves, are themselves, you can see that in the presence of PMDD, that they actually become part of the broader um, symptoms that someone might experience. So in the case of uh, PMDD, someone might have some, let's say, menstrual cycle symptoms that are relatively normal, like maybe a bit of bloating, a bit of fatigue, a bit of irritability. But you see that when the, with the psychological um, aspects being taken to the extreme, like for example, depression or anxiety, you get more of those physical symptoms associated with that psychiatric diagnosis being brought into the picture. So for example, a woman with PMDD who has severe anxiety might have more uh, palpitations, shortness of breath. Um, she might be sweating. She might be you know, very irritable and agitated. So overall, you get a broader um, spectrum of symptoms that might appear. And overall, like there's a long list of symptoms. So I'll just read out some of them for you here. Um, some of the emotional symptoms would be agitation or nervousness, um, anger, crying spells, feeling out of control, forgetfulness, loss of interest in activities and relationships, a classic feature of depression, irritability, moodiness, panic attacks, paranoia, sadness, and really importantly, and one of the reasons it's really important to, that this is diagnosed and treated appropriately is suicidality or thoughts of suicide. Okay. So that's something that will be screened for if someone had PMDD, uh, you'd be screening for uh, that suicidal ideation because what can happen is that if it reaches a peak uh, during that period pr prior to uh, a woman's period, then that's something that is obviously a very significant risk beyond anything else. It's literally end of life. So that's something that's really important to screen for. And then the physical symptoms as well would be things like acne, back pain, bloating, breast swelling or tenderness, GI issues. So we've mentioned some of those already. You can have constipation, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, bloating, as we said, cramping, dizziness, headaches, um, palpitations, changes in appetite, joint or muscle pain, muscle spasms as well, and then painful periods um, and reduced uh, libido or sex drive as well. So you can see there's a vast array of symptoms there, but if you've got five or more of those and one of those is one of those affective symptoms related to mood or your emotional state, then that's what puts you in that category of PMDD. Yeah, and apparently, or according to my understanding, at least, like it is... A little bit different than like if you're getting actually diagnosed for this it's a little bit different than just going oh yeah i think i have a bit of irritability you know it's not yeah, just it's pretty severe yeah it's it's not i don't want to say debilitating but it is impacting your life 
in a very negative way, you know, like someone might look at those, say, emotional symptoms of PMDD, right? They might be like agitation and nervousness. Yeah, I feel a little bit agitated on around my period. That's not the same as like what the diagnostic criteria is. You know, you might be like, yeah, I'm a bit angry or like crying spells, you know, like it's not just, oh, like, I don't know how you would say it. Like, oh, I, I cried because of this thing. I'm a little bit more sensitive to crying. It's not that. It's more so I'm just crying out of the blue. It's yeah. really impacting my life. There's no rhyme or reason to it. You know, same with like feelings of out of control or forgetfulness or, you know, a loss of interest in the activities and relationships around you. Like it's like, quote unquote unexplainable. Like obviously it's explainable through the lens of PMDD, but in terms of your day-to-day living, you're just going, these emotions, these uh, whatever, psychological or psychiatric or whatever you want to classify them as symptoms are impacting significantly on your life but they seem to be untethered to your actual life if that makes sense like it's not like like if you have a shit life and you're like oh i'm angry and i'm agitated like that's obviously explainable you know if there's a lot of stuff going on in your life obviously that's explainable right but if you're just going yeah every four weeks or so or whatever i'm like i'm really agitated i'm really angry i just have these crying spells i've like this feeling of despair of out of controlness you know i'm always forgetful around that time and it's really impacting your ability to work, have meaningful relationships, etc. then that would be something that I would be more concerned about. It wouldn't be as concerning. Like, obviously, it's concerning if it's happening to you, but it wouldn't be as concerning if you're just like, oh, yeah, like around my period, I'm a, I'm a little bit forgetful. It's not, you know, sometimes I forget to, like, you know, put the second latch on the door or whatever it is, you know, like, that's not like, yeah, you might be a little bit more forgetful, but it's not a massive impediment to your actual life. And is that the same as your understanding of that, Gary? Yeah, and, and this is actually, some, it's a good point because it's something that's important to consider within psychiatry and psychiatric diagnosis more broadly because a lot of people will, you know, they'll criticize psychiatry sometimes saying that, oh, but we all, we all get sad, you know, we all get anxious. But typically when you're looking at a psychiatric diagnosis, it's that disproportionate element that you mentioned that the person's symptoms, um, let's say their anxiety, their agitation, their nervousness, et cetera, are totally disproportionate to objective reality. So for example, if you're super agitated and nervous, because let's say there was a murder in your housing estate the night before, and now you're really freaked out about going to bed, that's totally like proportionate to the situation and that's not a diagnosis um but if you had that same paranoia about someone being in your estate uh, in your housing estate trying to break into houses and kill someone when in fact you live in like an upper class area where there's never been any crime at all then clearly that would be disproportionate to the situation and would be more on that kind of paranoid um, delusion spectrum from a psychiatric diagnosis perspective. Okay. So that's very true of PMDD. And it's also true of PMS uh, as well. So it's just important to recognize that as part of the menstrual cycle, there are normal changes in mood and emotional ability. There are also normal changes in physical symptoms, but as they become more and more severe, that's when we start to put someone in that category of PMS, or in this case, uh, PMDD. So it's not just a case of having a few symptoms, feeling a little bit irritable, like the crying spells is a good example. Someone would not be said to have PMDD because, you know, they cried over like something very reasonable. It would be more so that it's 
persistent crying that seems totally disproportionate to the situation. And very often when someone has um, crying that is more associated with psych- psychiatric diagnosis, there mightn't be anything that it's even attached to. You know, it's it's just it's the person can't even identify themselves uh, what it is they're they're crying over or what's upsetting them so much. Or yeah. maybe it's just, just something very, very small. You're just doing the washing and all of a yeah. sudden you're crying. Exactly. So that's that's more so what we're talking about here when we're talking about um, PMS or PMDD in particular. And to be fair, one of the things that's important as well is that um, symptoms for women related to the menstrual cycle are not always consistent from cycle to cycle. And that's one of the reasons that they put in that kind of stipulation that for three consecutive cycles for someone to have premenstrual syndrome, uh, because sometimes a woman might just have worse symptoms at a given, uh, during a given cycle, but that might be gone again in the next cycle. Or it might be that last year when she had particular things going on, her emotional ability was much worse, but now it's actually much better. So it's not just a consistent thing that's fixed for a woman throughout her um, life of menstruation. It is also something that can vary. Yeah, 100%. And obviously, look, this is one of those things where it would be great if we had the, the uh, again, lived experience, I suppose, to be able to go, oh, this is exactly what a quote unquote normal <laughs> menstrual cycle feels like. And this is what the difference is like. Because I find with a lot of, again, we'll, we'll categorize them as like psychiatric illnesses or psychiatric related phenomena. Um, it's very hard for someone who just has a normal experience to actually relate to that. You know, for example, I have ADHD, you know, and people will say, Uh, sure like we're all just you know we all like to procrastinate a little bit it's fine it's you know it's nothing you know i sure we're all a bit like you know there's a million things that we could be doing so it's just that's just normal but if you could actually be in my brain you'd be like jesus christ this guy needs psychiatric help (laughs) you know um for multiple reasons (laughs) um but you know what i mean it's like as a quote-unquote uh normal individual you can't necessarily relate to that unless you've actually experienced it. And obviously, look, the two of us are men and we're not going to be able to fully relate to the experience here, you know? So it is hard to, even as a woman, to understand the difference being like, oh, well, especially if you've had the symptoms your whole life, right? For example, let's say you literally had your first period at whatever, 13, 14, whatever it is, right? And you've always felt, I don't know crying spells you always had like crying crying spells when you, around your period you know maybe you had more intense forgetfulness you know maybe you did have that kind of apathy as well like you just didn't really enjoy the stuff that you normally enjoyed or you, know, you didn't really want to see your friends you keep in touch with your relationships or whatever like if you've always experienced that you're just going to think that that's normal that's a normal period you know you're not going to realize that potentially you actually have PMDD you know like for me for example again like I would just be like right oh everyone has a hard time concentrating everyone has a million and one different thoughts that are all trying to express themselves at the one time you know but then you actually start talking to other people and they're like no that all the stuff that you're talking about none of that stuff happens to me like yeah there's a bit of procrastination or whatever right um but it's not the same as my experience you know so this stuff you kind of need to talk about it a little bit more with individuals around you presumably if you're a woman um but even then it's kind of hard to really dial in and go oh this is actually 
I wouldn't say pathological, potentially it could be pathological, especially if you have thoughts of like suicide and stuff, but that there's actually an issue there. Absolutely. And, and as you said, you know, there's, it, it can be difficult for people to understand any psychiatric condition because all of us experience to some degree, um, basic psychiatric symptoms, but in a far more normal, um, spectrum. Okay. And it, it, I think the best way to understand that psychiatric, because some people genuinely believe that like psychiatric diagnoses like are not real. And people think that the whole field of psychiatry is a waste of time. (laughs) And, and there are some valid criticisms in there, but like, I mean, I would, I would ask you to like go and speak to someone who actually has like genuine paranoid schizophrenia, you know, and, and tell me that psychiatric diagnoses don't exist. Okay. Um, there are, there are extremes and every normal, um, emotion can be taken to an extreme point. And in this case with PMDD, there, there are str- extremes that do exist and any, any condition that increases um, suicidal ideation and puts someone at an elevated risk of suicide is something that is obviously of uh, public interest to, to deal with. So um, yeah, look, overall, they're the, that's the kind of basic uh, spectrum of symptoms that someone might experience. Like funnily enough, like the the pathogenesis or pathophysiology is, is not actually that clear. We mentioned this in the podcast before, so we won't reiterate the whole thing, but we mentioned that um, PMS and the reasons as to why some women get worse symptoms than others uh, during their menstrual cycle, the reasons aren't so clear. Um, it's It doesn't seem to be purely down to differences in levels of ovarian hormones and or differences in levels of uh, estrogen and progesterone. That contributes to some degree, but much like when we look at... Um, for example, responses to testosterone in men, it also seems like here there might be differences in the way that a woman responds to uh, circulating estrogen um, or or progesterone. So there's differences in the way that it's uh, responded to. There's differences in neurotransmission within the brain, for example, um, levels of uh, serotonin within the brain. That's probably modified here. We know that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors um, or antidepressants play a role in therapy of uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So as a result, that's probably something that is uh, indicative of the underlying mechanism. Um, Importantly, ovarian hormones interact with various neurotransmitter symptoms or systems within the brain. So they interact with opioids, with GABA, with serotonin, um, with dopamine and other uh, neurotransmission systems within the brain. And as a result, and this is kind of more of a a general point related to psychiatry is that it's not always easy to pin down a single mechanism because you're talking about the influence of various circulating biological factors, talking about the interaction between them and then various different systems within the brain. And it can be very difficult to pin down exactly uh, what's going on. But overall, it does seem like there's, you know, ovarian uh, steroids, Uh, play a role here. So estrogen and progesterone and their interaction with the uh, neurotransmitters within the brain, uh, they probably uh, explain uh, some, but, but not all uh, of the symptoms, you know, there's probably differences in, in genetic susceptibility here as well. And also one's, I guess, baseline psychological state. So there is some relationship between PMDD and current or future risk of psychiatric diagnosis generally. So for example, if a woman experiences depression uh, related to PMDD, then that seems to be a risk factor for depression more broadly as well. So um, the overall etiology, not a hundred percent clear, but that's a, a general theme throughout psychiatry really.
Yeah, and see, this is the thing with well, anything to do with the brain. Well, anything to do with, you know, whatever you want to call this, psychiatry, psychology, this whole field of like our thoughts, basically our thoughts and feelings, you know, um, we don't really understand this stuff. Like, say, for example, neuroscientists, like if you ask a neuroscientist about depression, they'll give you a neuroscientist perspective on what depression is, right? They will create models using neuroscience to be like, right, this is what depression is. But if you ask say, someone like a biochemist, they'd be like, well, why are you only focusing on the brain? You know, like there could be stuff going on within the broader body, but a neuroscientist, they don't really think about that stuff. Like, obviously they have to think about that because, you know, your nervous system does extend beyond the brain, but they're very brain centric, you know, for example, in there's a, a, a large body of research to suggest uh, in terms of depression and um, the kind of think of it OCP, like the oral contraceptive um, in terms of what, what's the link there. And if you ask a neuroscientist, they won't even look at something like, you know, depletion of androgens, right. Um, in, in women, because the brain makes its own DHEA. Right. So they're like, right, we have enough androgens in the brain for androgenic signaling. We don't even look at androgens in relation to OCP and depression. Whereas if you look at the rest of the body, like the OCP does interact with androgens. So it can deplete the amount of androgens that you're making uh, if you're taking the OCP. But if you look at it from a neuroscientistic, neuroscientist's perspective, they're like, that's irrelevant because we have enough DHEA in the brain, right? So the thing about this stuff is it's actually really complicated, right? And the way science currently works, you're kind of pigeonholed into different... Um, categories different subdomains you're like oh yeah i'm a scientist or whatever but you're a scientist within this subdomain you know and that doesn't necessarily lead itself to great like uh, interconnectedness in terms of our understanding of course that's the goal at the end of this stuff you know but if you actually want to understand neuroscientists neuroscience you actually have to study neuroscience you have to become an expert in neuroscience which doesn't leave a lot of time to become an expert in all the other stuff outside of that you know um but then more specifically to pmdd like they're like like you noted earlier on it's actually very hard to figure out what is going on figure out the etiology or etymology i always get those words uh, messed up but it's very hard to understand what's going on because it's not like we have a perfect blueprint of how hormones interact across the entire body, right? Like this could be true immune signaling. This could be true nervous system signaling. This could be true like, you know, tissue level signaling. Like there's so diverse uh, interactions that occur here, right? Um, but it, like you were noted earlier on, it, it doesn't seem to be related to, oh, you just have high estrogen and that's what causes this. Or you just have low progesterone to high estrogen or high progesterone to low estrogen. There doesn't seem to be a, a correlation there that we can discern, you know? Um, Cause if there was, that would be fantastic. We could just be like, Oh, look, you're someone that just, you know, around your period, you just have very low estrogen and relative to progesterone. And that's the issue for you. So we'll give you some sort of estrogen and that'll fix it. You know, that doesn't seem to be the case. It would be fantastic if it was, because then we'd have a, a clear mechanism of how to treat this stuff. But then also there could be differences in terms of the actual hormone receptors, you know, like there's a variety, a number of different receptor subtypes and whatever. Um, and you could just have more, you know, a, a more whatever PMDD 
uh, focused subtype of the estrogen receptor, for example, you could have a subtype, uh, a preponderance of that subtype, you know, whatever, a ratio of it that just makes you more likely to be on the spectrum towards that PMDD, you know? So it's, it's not clear, you know? Basically, and this, this is the most uh, hand-wavy way to describe it, it's like, yeah, it's hormonal fluctuations. And there's a genetic propensity towards a sensitivity to those hormonal fluctuations that seems to put you at risk for PMDD. You know, like it's the most hand wavy thing ever. We know it's related to hormones in some way, right? We know there seems to be a genetic component to it, you know, and there could be multiple genes involved. There could be multiple, you know, expressions of that. And, you know, that's why we have a a diverse category of like how this actually is expressed. Like you could have depressive symptoms, you could have like more anxiety, you could have more paranoia, whatever. And, um, but there seems to be some sort of genetic propensity here. Um, and we don't know the full connection between them. Yeah. And then just one final note on the, uh, before we kind of move on to what to do. Uh, it's also important to note that the, it, like both of these premenstrual syndrome and premenstrual dysphoric disorder say premenstrual and therefore one would assume that they can only be diagnosed in menstruating women. And that's actually not true. So you can actually have, like there are instances where someone could have PMS or PMDD in the absence of a period. So for example, let's say a woman has had a hysterectomy. So she's had her uterus removed and therefore she doesn't have an endometrial lining, but she's had her ovaries conserved so in that case it will be a little more difficult to diagnose because you're not getting menses you don't have that as a a reference point but it, it still can occur in association with um the fluctuations in in hormones throughout the cycle and then the other one would be you know for example a uh, type of contraception where ovarian um or where ovulation is preserved and that can occur in um intrauterine um intrauterine intrauterine system or device one or the other i think there's a slight difference but anyway um certain types of contraception okay so it can happen it's probably not the case for most women okay you probably don't need to worry too much about that but it can happen all right um we happy to move on to what to do yeah we should actually probably just note that a lot of this stuff does actually seem to resolve itself at menopause <laughs> you know like that's why we do know that there is clearly a hormonal element to it you know, uh, like if it had continued going and you were like, right, you're at menopause, there's, you know, the hormones are, are completely changed and it's still occurring, then maybe there was a misdiagnosis at the time and the menstrual cycle was just making something more apparent. For example, maybe you have depression, right? You just have always had depression and the combination of having depression and your period symptoms just made you really have depression, <laughs> you know? And um, like if you continue to have that after menopause, then we'd be like, right, maybe there was actually a little bit of a misdiagnosis, or at least I would think that would be the case. Do you agree? Yeah, that's a good point because like typically PMS symptoms would start in like when a woman's in her early 20s. So you're talking about early 20s to late 30s as being the point at which in the presence of these symptoms, you'd think, okay, is this PMS, is this PMDD? Whereas if a woman's in her 40s or 50s, you'd probably be more likely to attribute these symptoms to menopausal transition because this is important. You can have a lot of the same symptoms that emerge during menopause, um, but they won't have that same like 
before um, menses type of presentation. Okay, so if a woman's in her forties or fifties and is experiencing the symptoms we've discussed, you might consider it to be related to menopause. If she's between twenty and forty, probably more likely, and that it is PMS or PMDD. So, um, yeah, that's an important point. Um, so yeah, what to what to do? Um, it's a, it's important to recognize here that like if you have PMDD, like this is something you're going to be discussing with your doctor. Okay. It's not something that you're going to be able to look after using just like diet and exercise, unfortunately, um, plays a role, but probably not the, 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 the most important thing. Um, overall, what you want to, what you want to look at here is obviously starting with having a good healthy lifestyle, of course, something that's really important. So when you look at uh, menstrual symptoms, uh, generally, exercise is actually something that's really effective. Um, obviously, there are cases where a woman may not be able to exercise, because she's, in, you know, in so much pain, for example, if you've got severe abdominal cramping, or you're very anxious, and you don't want to leave the house, like fair enough, getting to the gym is going to be a bit of a push. But even in, in the presence of, for example, a bit of fatigue, maybe you're feeling a little bit anxious, you've got some um, abdominal bloating, getting out and doing exercise um, is something that's actually going to be really beneficial for your symptoms. Uh, to my knowledge, I think aerobic exercise has really had the most uh, study in this area, um, but I don't think there's going to be a clear advantage to any one type of exercise once you get out and get your body moving. That's the most important thing. And Naturally, I suppose a lot of our audience already exercise and they might be experiencing these symptoms. And one of the things that we recommend to clients very often when they experience um, premenstrual symptoms would be to modify your programming. So for example, if you know that this reliably occurs every cycle for a number of days prior to your period, then you could like run a, a planned deload or half deload week um, on that week, for example. So that might be you saying, right, I'm going to reduce my number of training days from four days to three days. Um, I'm going to take all of my um, uh, volume down. So for example, reducing by one to, one to two sets per exercise. And instead of going one to two reps from failure, I'm going to leave like three to four reps in the tank. So overall, what you're doing is you're working at a lower intensity, you're performing less volume and you're cutting the training days down. And as a result, your workouts should be a little bit more tolerable because the expectation will be that if you've got, you know, more severe premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual symptoms, it's going to be difficult to perform at your best anyway. So uh, audio regulation is something that's going to be quite helpful there. So that would be my advice to someone that already trains. Uh, reduce your volume, reduce your intensity, see what you're capable of doing. And if you really feel like your symptoms are, are quite severe and you can't get to the gym at all, just even get out for a walk. You know, it, it's something that can be very valuable. Um, a lot of women don't want to leave the house when they have very severe symptoms because they just feel like crap. They're not confident at all. They don't want to be seen. You know, they feel anxious and just getting getting out somewhere in nature where there's no one else around is something that can do wonders, um, especially for your, for your mental health here, if you're on the PMDD side of the spectrum. hundred percent. And again, I'd love to say that there was this particular program that would be like, this is the, the PMDD or the PMS program. Here you go. And like, believe me, if we made that and sold it, we'd be making bank, but there's no like scientific rationale for uh, a program specifically designed for that. There's no, advantage to a specific program there apart from the fact that 
you need to take into account your actual cycle yourself, right? Like if you do have that very regular cycle, you're like, oh, it's uh, four weeks long. It's always the exact same amount of days or thereabouts. Like you can obviously periodize your training. You can really specifically go, right, I know during this week, like every four weeks, I'm going to have these symptoms. I'm not going to want to train or whatever it is that your experience is. And then you can modify your program accordingly, like ahead of time, right? We are a little bit more inclined to have a bit of a, like more fully auto-regulatory approach, right? And what I mean by that is, right, we have a general outline for our program. We know we want to do these things. We know we want to accomplish this kind of stuff over the next 8, 12, 16 weeks, whatever it is. And that doesn't mean that, yeah, okay, the vast majority of the time we're going to want to train whatever it was, let's say, you know, one to three reps from failure. We want to have one to three reps in reserve the vast majority of the time. We know we want to hit, let's just say, 100 total sets, Per week you know that's our broad outline that's our broad goal like we prefer a little bit more of an auto-regulatory approach in terms of like i don't care if you are constantly at the edge of that training in terms of oh yeah i'm really pushing it if you need to take a little bit of a you know a dip from that you know that's fine if you need to go right this week look it's just not a good week for me it's just not i'm not able to push myself i don't I, i'm not gonna i'm supposed to increase the weight by 2.5 kilos or 1.25 kilos or whatever it is like you don't necessarily have to have that preordained. It doesn't need to have this perfectly periodized plan of every single week, I'm going to step ladder, increase whatever metrics you're trying to increase. Like some weeks you're going to be able to take it a little bit easier. Some weeks you're going to feel great and you're going to be able to push it. So we prefer that fully auto-regulatory approach in our training. And what I often say to my clients, I'm like, look, if it's there, take it. Cool. You know, keep in mind that we do have other training sessions later in the week. So don't destroy yourself on the, on the first training session of the week or whatever it is. But if you're feeling good, you're, you know, your sleep has been great. Your nutrition has been great. Everything's been good. Yeah. Push it a little bit harder. But if you have those hard weeks, you know, more stress, whatever else is on going on in your life. Yeah. We can take it down a notch. We can, you know, whatever, let's keep five reps in reserve this week or, you know, keep it three reps in reserve, but we're going to lower the weight because you're just not as capable of lifting the same weight you previously were, you know? So we want to have that auto-regulatory approach with this. We want to keep the broad outline of what, we, what we're trying to do with the program. Like you can still get really good workouts in, um, but you're just going to have to modify them based on the perception or the actual symptoms that you have, you know? And this goes for the case of just you know, your quote-unquote regular normal cycle, you might still have symptoms that are like, right, yeah, look, I'm just not feeling as great this week. So I'm going to take it a little bit down. You know, I'm going to reduce the volume, reduce the intensity. I'm going to reduce the amount of days that I'm training. Like there's so many modifications that we could possibly make, but ultimately the approach stays the same. We're, we're keeping a broader eye, or eye to how the program is designed, how, like what we're trying to achieve. And then we're turning the dials up or down based on how we're feeling that week or those days. Um, and this is especially the case for PMDD. Like if you're just feeling like crap, like you have all these, like, let's say you have more of the psychiatric symptoms, like you have anxiety, you have, you know, some apathy, depression, you're probably not going to want to train. So you have to think of yourself or think of your program design with that in mind. You know, like if you're going to go into it and go like, oh, I have this five day per week program that if I don't get the program done and I don't you know, get the, the increase in weights and like whatever you have very like confining rules to that program and you're only going to make yourself feel worse. Like you're going to make it worse to actually get to the gym. If we have an approach though, where it's like, all right, you have all these symptoms. 
cool. We don't need to destroy ourselves in the gym this week. Yeah, we can just modify it this way or that way. You know, whatever it is, like we've said, you can reduce the volume, you can reduce the number of days, you can reduce the intensity, whatever it is that works for you. Like some people are going to go in and go, yeah, actually, I still feel good, ready for training. So I still uh, maybe have more of the anger symptoms that you're like, yeah, I want to just go in and lift some heavy weights, but I know my recovery is impacted. I just don't feel as good. If I try to do my same number of training days or the same volume of work that I'm doing, I, I just can't do it. So maybe you keep the intensity the same, but you reduce the volume. You know, there's so many modifications that we can possibly make. And that's a good thing, right? You don't have to be beholden to this specific, yes, you must hit this exact program as I've laid it out here, you know, keep the general idea of it. And then we'll modify it based on the actual symptoms that are present. Uh, would you agree with that, Gary? Absolutely. Fantastic. And then just a little bit more on that aerobic piece there in terms of uh, there is a lot of research to suggest that aerobic exercise seems to help with you know menstrual cycle issues in general. And I don't know necessarily if this is like there's no mechanistic rationale. Well, there's a few mechanistic rationales, which maybe I'll talk about in a second, but there I don't know if it's purely an artifact of the fact that a lot of the research previously has been done on aerobic exercise, like look up until whatever, let's say the nineties, you know, being you know, generous here up until the nineties, like people basically researched exercise in the context of like running <laughs> or in the context of like aerobic exercise. So that's basically only the last, let's say 25 years. We'll give it 25 years that people have been really seriously researching, like, you know, even anaerobic exercise, <laughs> uh, we're really researching like resistance training. Right. So we don't have as much, data we don't have as much research done now a lot of it is more recent so that's that is a benefit because we've better methods and whatever but it hasn't been elucidated whether like resistance training or aerobic training is better for menstrual cycle issues specifically pms or pmdd it might also be an artifact of the fact that people generally don't auto regulate their training they don't go in and go oh i'm gonna keep you know take a little bit easier this week where that's so much easier to do when you're running, you know, because you're basically running, let's say you're doing aerobic training, you're already running at whatever, 130 to 150 beats per minute. That's your heart rate, you know? So you automatically kind of auto-regulate your training. Like if you try to push harder, your heart rate is going higher anyway. You know, so you're, you're falling out of that aerobic zone, etc. right? And um, so this is one of those things where you'll often see aerobic exercise how noted that's all oh, this is going to be the most beneficial for pmdd or pms but that may not actually be a fact that might not actually be like scientifically accurate there potentially are mechanistic reasons why it would be potentially beneficial and we can you know really mechanistically hypothesize here and go you know maybe there's some uh, ability to you know i don't know metabolize hormones differently when you do that there's some different like hormonal cascade after running that you don't get when you're doing resistance training maybe there's some changes in other hormones that we're not even considering considering um but ultimately like this would just be me and gary like mechanistically hypothesizing here and ultimately i would just rather see people exercise in general i don't really care about what type of exercise they're doing um but if you find yourself, you're like, I, I still want to exercise, but you know, resistance training doesn't seem to work for me when I'm experiencing these PMDD symptoms, maybe try something else. Maybe try some aerobic exercise. Like maybe that is your program. Maybe it's like, yeah, okay, normally you love going to the gym five days per week, but then on week four here, you're like, you're getting all these symptoms, you're, you're feeling like crap, you have all these PMDD symptoms, 
maybe that's the week that you do a bit more aerobic work. Maybe that's the week that you do a bit more like cardiovascular training or very like low intensity training, go for a walk in nature or whatever it is, you know? So you have to be more fluid. The further along the spectrum you are in terms of menstrual cycle irregularities or issues, like if you're like, right, I'm really on this issue side of the spectrum where I'm getting PMS, I'm getting PMDD, then maybe for you, you need to have way more fluidity in your program. You can't have this set four week program. I'm going to do this on this day. I'm going to do this on this day. Like you might need a little bit more fluidity in it. Whereas someone else, they might be able to go, right. I have a really highly structured program, you know? Yep. Straight up facts. Um, obviously like when we talk, when we move on then to, from talking about exercise to talking about nutrition, there's very little here that's, um, special i would say like i think a lot of it comes back to a lot of our our very basic uh recommendations where we're encouraging people to eat a calorie appropriate um diet uh in this case in this case like you're probably going to want to auto regulate the amount of uh, calories you're consuming in accordance with your symptoms to some degree so for example if you were trying already to uh, consume a calorie deficit and your calories were quite low and now you have all these symptoms that are making adherence difficult and you're having gi issues etc and you're very irritable like i'd probably be inclined to go somewhere around maintenance and just bring your calories up a little bit and you know don't add more stressors uh, than you need to and the sim similar thing can be said for if you're trying to gain weight let's say and you're trying to consume a calorie surplus your calories have been getting quite high you're eating a lot of food and now you've got all these gi symptoms and a loss of appetite etc i'd probably just use that that week or so or a few days of symptoms that you have to you know just come back to maintenance so i think that goes for both ends of the spectrum there in terms of overall uh, caloric needs um Along with that, like just maintaining overall diet quality is something that is uh, important here. So you don't want, especially if you've got the more GI uh, end of the spectrum type of symptoms, you don't want to be consuming anything that's really going to, you know, throw your digestion off. Okay. So that might even go in some cases against some of our normal healthy recommendations. So for example, if you get lots of symptoms associated with a high fiber diet, um, when you're experiencing uh, your diarrhea or constipation, etc., then maybe you pull the fiber back a little bit and you just, you know, don't try to go crazy with it. Um, but overall, consuming a high fiber diet is probably something that's wise um, for your health as a whole um, and potentially uh, for managing some some symptoms here. Um, you could make some some um, some points related to like uh, hormone uh, metabolism and excretion here that might be important. Um, it's hard to say. I don't think there's any real trials on, on fiber diets. No, I haven't seen anything on that. Like, again, it would be mechanistic hypothesizing. We'd be like, right, there's some sort of hormonal, like some, in other ones we've talked about, like say P or PCOS and, and yeah. we could be like, right, maybe there's a bit more of a rationale here. Um, in terms of like fiber is going to quote unquote, uh, say put this in inverted commas or whatever, going to bind to hormones in the gut and yeah. help with excretion. Like it's a very simplistic way of thinking about it. Um, so if we have stuff like maybe, okay, there's a hormonal link here. Maybe it's some, you know, random estrogen metabolite that, you know, it's, if it's being reabsorbed into the circulation because you didn't, you know, get rid of it in your gastrointestinal tract or whatever. Um, yeah, maybe we could argue that high fiber would be beneficial here, but I don't, like it's just not as well supported as like for PCOS and stuff like that. I'd be like, yeah, okay, cool. There's a bit more of a, a rationale here. 
right? Whereas for PMDD and PMS, like it might help for some individuals, like that might be the reason they might just have, like, again, like we don't know the exact reason for PMD or PMDD or PMS. Um, so I don't know, maybe for them, it is too high of an estrogen or estrogen metabolites and fiber might help. Um, but in general, a, a higher fiber diet does seem to be more beneficial. And we're not talking here like excessive amounts of fiber. Like we generally recommend 10 to 15 grams of fiber per thousand calories, you know, like that's a, our general recommendation. Um, you can go higher than that. You know, you can be like, right, I'm going to go, I'm going to trial uh, 15 to 20 grams per thousand calories, you know, see how you get on with that. And some people find that that's, that's where the sweet spot is for them. Other people, again, like you were saying, Gary, they might have more of the gastrointestinal issues and they might have to go, go down in our fiber recommendation. They might start at the 10 and go, this is still too much for me. And if that is the case, maybe you do do some sort of like a elimination diet or like myself and Brian talked about in this series, like that kind of a low FODMAP diet. Like maybe you do something like that, trial that out, see how you get on with that. Perfect. Um, yeah. So overall, I, I think like as, as your baseline recommendation, just aim for a high fiber diet and see how you get on. Similar with our other recommendations, like eating plenty of fruits and vegetables, getting in enough protein, especially if you're going to be, you know, pulling back your training or missing sessions, like you want to make sure you're getting enough protein. Um, you want to ideally eliminate any irritants, if you will. So no alcohol, no smoking, and potentially limiting caffeine might be beneficial for some people as well. Um, that's going to be more important for some than others. So for example, if you're someone with PMDD that's associated with um, very anxious symptoms, then lim limiting or restricting caffeine would probably be wise. Um, and then also reducing um, dietary sodium intake and potentially refined sugars basically all of the normal things that we encourage in a healthy diet. If you can keep those on track, um, not, not just when you have symptoms, like throughout your life, ideally, um, then that's probably going to help. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a hard one. Cause like, you know, maybe say giving up alcohol for you, that's the thing. Like you always mentioned as well, like you've been diagnosed with depression and you always mention it. Like if you have alcohol that severely impacts on your depressive symptoms, you know, and like, gone i said fuck that yeah it's it's a lot of people have like i i think alcohol is probably much worse for your psychological state than most people acknowledge because it's such a normal part of, of culture and we 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 put other names over things like you know hangover which for a lot of people is a severe suicidal state or a severe depressive state like, like detoxing you know especially yeah. like you're going into fucking detox here like me mean my alcohol like <laughs> yeah like so yeah i mean a lot of a lot if not most suicide is associated with alcohol loads of violent crime is associated with alcohol etc so yeah really really bad for your mental health um so take it easy on the alcohol yeah especially if you think you know it might be related to your pmdt for sure <laughs> um but yeah, like I, I don't drink alcohol. So look, there, that's me. But smoking as well, like that's just not a great, you know, habit in general to have, not a health habit. And um, But caffeine is a weird one where it's like, yeah, oh, people see this as being associated with health in general. They're like, right, this, you know, three to four cups of coffee per day seems to be somewhat cardioprotective, seems to be somewhat uh, neuroprotective as well. Um, but it does have other effects 
in the body as well. Like for example, for me, like caffeine just makes my sex hormone binding globulin go up, right? That might be beneficial for, you know, someone with PMDD. I don't know, but it also acts as like a, a say a mild aromatase inhibitor. So it might actually be, you know, changing estrogen levels in your body as well. You know, that's a little bit less important for women uh, in terms of aromatase is not the way women are making estrogen, but I'm just saying that it does have other implications in terms of your hormones in general that you might not be aware of, but it could also just be causing some sort of like GI upset because it does actually interact like caffeine and coffee. They do actually interact with uh, gastrointestinal things, you know, uh, bile acid secretion and different things like that, you know? So we like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the impact there is, but if you throw or trawl through um, like say Reddit and stuff, as I said before, like when I research these things, I'm like, well, what are people saying when they do this? What is their lived experience? You know, there's all these forums online that you can look at. And, um, but a lot of people say like, oh yeah, I gave up caffeine and it improved my symptoms, you know? So, you know, maybe it's something to trial if you're uh, a caffeine fiend, like Gary has been for the, the last while doing his exams and work and everything. Um, like maybe it is something where you're like, right, actually I need to reduce this. However, caffeine could also be beneficial for some of your symptoms, you know, like caffeine and depression, for example, there seems to be a, a link there in terms of caffeine improving depressive symptoms. You know, caffeine does seem to be enjoyable. It does have some dopaminergic properties. So, you know, maybe it would help with, if you have the PMDD more depressive type, you know, um, and also you will find a lot of the time in say painkillers and stuff, like they'll have caffeine in them um because it has that analgesic type properties um so you know that is one thing to be aware of that you know maybe it is beneficial for some of the other like more physical uh symptoms that you're having like that that could be the case and um, but it is important to also understand that maybe you gave up caffeine in your, your diet because you're like yeah i'm gonna really try to see if this is uh, affecting me and then all of a sudden you start consuming a lot of caffeine because it's in your painkiller you know so just to be aware of that. Um, but any other things like an anti-inflammatory diet, that's generally what we recommend anyway. We're not like see, saying an anti-inflammatory diet is, you know, a bit woo-woo. It's like just eat a, a good diet and it is generally anti-inflammatory. But what we're talking about there is eating a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables where possible, you know, eating some lean protein, eating foods that agree with you and they aren't like causing any inflammatory, you know, symptoms. And that would be ideal and um, but there are other things related to that in terms of there is a link between inflammation and depression and that's beyond the scope of this podcast at least like we maybe we'll talk about that in, in future episodes but having a lower inflammatory burden could potentially help with depressive symptoms you know and that could be from you know the diet it could be compounds in the diet for example that might be leading to higher levels of inflammation there could be some undiagnosed issues uh, like gastrointestinal issues in terms of maybe you do have some sort of like celiac disease or maybe you do have some sort of like crohn's disease or you know something like that some sort of mild form of it where it's not the ever present you know it's not there all the time but it's there all the time but it's not causing such huge issues that you're like oh i need to go to the doctor about this and um, and that could be contributing to inflammation. There could be some sort of like a, the brush border of your like microvilli or whatever. There seems to be some sort of like, I don't know, or I rather I should say like the tight junctions are just not as tight as they should be. And some, you know, food particles are getting into your bloodstream. Like there's so many things that could be going on here. And especially for women where you're a little bit more 
predisposed to autoimmune issues than, than men because of the way estrogen interacts with the immune system and stuff. Like maybe that's also contributing. So there's a lot that we could potentially discuss here, but it would again just be me and Gary mechanistically hypothesizing here. You know, like we could maybe we will in the future, we'll write out like a, a huge article of like, right, these are the, you know, maybe potentially things that we could consider. Um, but again, it would just be mechanistic hypothesis. There's no research to fully suggest like this diet is better than this diet. You know, there's research to suggest for a number of other issues in terms of, you know, heart health, cardiovascular health and different things being like this diet is potentially better. And we can use some of that research to go, right, well, it seems to be better for health because of X, Y, and Z. Like for example, a Mediterranean diet, like you could make an argument that a Mediterranean style diet for PMDD would be beneficial. You know, like you could make that argument, but we don't have any direct research on that. Not to my knowledge, at least, you know, um, but yeah, do you have anything else to say on the nutrition front, Gary? No, we talk about supplements. Yeah. Supplements. Uh, do you want to have a crack at that or will I uh, go through it? Yeah, personally, I mean, like, like I'll let you touch on it, but I, I'm fairly underwhelmed, to be honest, by the, the evidence on, on supplements. Like, even some of those that have been, like, slotted into some actual medical guidelines, like vitamin B6, for example, like, you look at the evidence on this, and it's fairly underwhelming. Like, I don't think that there's that much convincing evidence to demonstrate that someone with PMS or PMDD is going to have significant improvements in symptoms by taking uh, certain supplements like there are especially just on that especially in the context of if they're doing the diet that we recommend yeah if the diet's in a good place you know you know it's like it's not giving you something above and beyond that if there was look again i'd be selling that supplement <laughs> for sure like if someone has like for example vitamin d deficiency um like an identified deficiency then yeah absolutely please you know take vitamin d if there are other dietary deficiencies then that's something that's going to be more beneficial. But in the context of adequate nutrient intake, um, if you're following the rest of our dietary recommendations, I don't see very strong evidence for any particular supplements. And the reason I say that, and the reason I kind of open with that is because the, the medical options are effective and relatively low risk um, and easily accessible. We'll and talk if that about was, those in a second. We'll finish. Well, no, I'll get, I'm going to get there, but I'm saying that if that wasn't there, I'd lean more in the direction of supplements to say, okay, maybe, you know, try this, try this, try this, try this, try this, because you don't have medical options, but because those are there, I'm, you know, a little bit more skeptical of the supplement side of things, but do you want to touch on some of those that maybe have a little bit of evidence for them? Yeah. Um, and this is again, I fully, fully back what you said. Like we, first of all, have this like food first approach, you know, it's like, right. Focus on the food get all the nutrients you can get from the food first and foremost, that's your first port of call because everyone wants to get this, this pill or, you know, go on to Amazon or iHerb or any of those websites that sell supplements and go, yeah, I'm going to get this supplement. It's going to cure all my issues and it's going to be fantastic. And unfortunately that's the way the health and fitness world markets things. You know, they'll be like, right, take this supplement. It's going to cure all your issues, etc. And that's just, it's very underwhelming. Like you said, Gary, it's just not, no, any of these things that I looked into, they're just not that effective. They just do not seem to have a lot of good, solid research behind them in terms of something above and beyond what you could get with just like dietary recommendations or like you're noted there, like actual pharmacological or just, you know, medical interventions, you know? Um, but there are a few that, you know, they seem to be 
you know, recommended a lot or mentioned a lot, uh, vitamin B1 and B2, they do actually seem to have relatively strong evidence um, for PMS, right? There are some studies ongoing, whether they help with PMDD, you know, and, you know, they might. Um, and there's a, like, basically the B vitamins are involved in the metabolic reactions in the body. Let's just put it like that. There's more to them than that, but, you know, they're involved in a lot of different reactions within the body. So, if we have an issue here of maybe there's too much estrogen or maybe there's this different, like maybe serotonin is going, getting converted down into, or not serotonin, but tryptophan and all that is getting converted down into kynurenine and stuff like this. We're like, you know, maybe there is a, a B vitamin here that would help with a, a better, you know, movement of this, better metabolism of this down the, the pathway that we want. Like there's all these mechanistic hypotheses, hypotheses that we could be like, yeah, this is the reason for this. But B1 and B2, they do seem to be, you know, somewhat effective. You can get these from just eating fruits and vegetables a lot of the time, you know, and also lean proteins, etc. Right. And um, B6 is also, like you were saying, Gary, there seem to be some evidence there in some of the, you know, medical recommendations. They will mention B6. Um, but again, you can get all these B vitamins from the diet. You know, I don't see a huge benefit with supplementing above and beyond the like diet. If you just eat a lot of fruit and fruits and vegetables in general, you're getting getting a lot of this stuff. If you're really and you're like, oh, like I, I want to get some more of this, you can add a multivitamin, and you're probably going to get the B vitamins on top of that as well. You don't need to be like, oh, we need to get this B one supplement, this B two supplement, and this B six supplement, and I might as well get a B twelve supplement while I'm at it. Like you don't need to do that. Just you know, get a multivitamin, a good high quality multivitamin, and you're good to go, right? Um, magnesium does seem to be somewhat effective in terms of um alleviating some of the symptoms related to pms and potentially pmdd especially some of the more physical symptoms and um, but the evidence is somewhat lacking in terms of an actual like we'll call it treatment for pmdd you know it, for some people they can see they can see you know huge improvements they're like oh this is this is a game changer it really helps with my digestive issues or really helps with you know relaxation of my muscles or the cramping or whatever and for some people like we've talked about it in previous podcasts for some people yeah it can be fantastic but is it going to cure is it going to fix pmdd no and um, if someone was coming to me and they're like well not me particularly going into a doctor and they're like oh uh, i think i'm going to take uh, magnesium for my depressive uh, suicidality as a result of pmdd i'd be like yeah maybe we need some uh, heavier hitters than fucking magnesium you know um but you know it's relatively harmless just don't get that magnesium oxide most of the other forms are perfectly fine magnesium oxide you're probably gonna shit your brains out which is not great maybe if you've constipation maybe you know um, but other than that like it's it's not it's not a, a great form of it so any of the other ones they're fine right um omega-3s there's potentially some benefit here there's benefit in terms of omega-3s in the diet in general like we, that's why we generally recommend eating fish fatty fish ideally twice per week that would be fantastic and um, you can then supplement on top of that if you need to or you feel you need to get some omega-3s in the diet there's you know vegetarian options or sorry i should say plant-based options as well like there's algae omega-3s and um, so they potentially help they're somewhat anti-inflammatory that's a little bit you know simplified but they do seem to have anti-inflammatory properties which you know maybe that helps um certain subtypes of pmdd and um, vitamin e again is it's an antioxidant does more in the body than just that but potentially it's beneficial and um, the research behind it in terms of pmdd yeah it's not really all that um clear 
for me, they're not something I'd be like, yeah, look, get straight on the vitamin E, you know, same with calcium. Like it's beneficial for women in general, especially if you are on the spectrum of also having some sort of amenorrhea and maybe some uh, lower bone mineral density, like, okay, cool. Like, or calcium potentially beneficial vitamin D, like you noted, like a lot of people in the Western world the Northern hemispheres as well seem to have low vitamin D levels. You know, we're all indoors and not out in the sun. Um, so potentially beneficial there. It is a pro hormone or it could be classified as a pro hormone. It does interact with a lot of the other hormones within the body or at least a hormonal system within the body. And um, so there's potential there. And then there's also other ones that are often recommended. And these have more to do with you know, estrogen metabolism or more female specific uh, reproductive hormones and stuff like vitex you know i never fucking remember the the full name for it um that's potentially beneficial for pms some people will say they take it and they're like yeah look my pms symptoms uh seemed to get better there's some evidence to suggest it helps with pmdd but look as i've said before this is not something that i'd be like oh yeah i'm just gonna take this random you know herb that has potentially profound impacts on my uh hormonal system i'd be like right you need to talk to a doctor about this you need to do some good research on this examine.com that's where we often tell people to go to to start your research um but you know obviously the ideal would be to actually start reading some scientific papers about this stuff and um, but i know not a lot of people are educated in that and um, if it was me i probably wouldn't you know like it's it seems to be relatively harmless but even still you know, it wouldn't be something that I'd be like, this is, you know, frontline intervention here, get on the Vitex, you know, um, same with calcium deglucarate and diendylmethane. Um, both of them help with estrogen metabolism or potentially help with estrogen metabolism um, and excretion from the body, um, which could be beneficial. They potentially are more beneficial for something like PCOS or even endometriosis and stuff like that. For PMDD, again, because we don't have a clear like this is the exact thing that's going on. It's estrogen is too high or too low or whatever. You know, it's hard to say. Um, so when I gave my like spiel about them in the previous podcast and said, yeah, it's probably not that beneficial. Um, it's even less beneficial, you know, potential here in my opinion, at least. I'm sure there's someone out there that's like, you know, I took some uh, din and, you know, it cured all my issues. I'm like, cool, fantastic. You found the, the fix for you but that's not going to be the fix for the vast majority of people. Um, do you have anything else to say on the, the supplement side of things, Gary? Nope. Just, just the drugs. Well, first, before that, we need to mention that, look, stress management and sleep. We're not going to rattle on about them <laughs> every single time, but stress management and sleep are key to health in general. Surprise, right? surprise. You know? Like it, they're, they're just always there. Right. So, <laughs> get your stress in, in order in whatever way you can. Now, that can obviously be, there can be barriers to getting your stress in order, especially if you do have PMDD and you're having all these, these issues around like maybe anxiety, nervousness, depression, apathy, you know, you don't want to actually even get out of bed and you're like, right, I have all this work to do. Maybe your stress management is, you know, not ideal uh, from that perspective. There's barriers there, but when you can get some stress management practices in place and we always recommend trying to focus on your stress management before you are stressed. Like it's so much easier to prepare yourself, make yourself more resilient rather than trying to dig yourself out of a stress induced hole, right? Like 
So get stress management practices in place. Um, and the thing about it is it's always the case where the people that need stress management the most, they always come out with the classic line of, I just don't have enough time for this. You know, I just don't have the time to put in to do this. And that just leaves you in a situation where you never have time to do this because you're always stressed. <laughs> you know, you're always, always up against that clock because you're always stressed because you have no stress management practices, which means that you're always stressed. Um, and it's the same with sleep. People will come in, literally we'll have people come into our coaching and they'll be like, yeah, I get five hours of sleep per night, you know? And like for some people, that's perfectly fine. And for certain periods of time in your life, look, you're going to have to do lower sleep periods. You know, if you have a new newborn child, probably not going to get perfect sleep, you know? Um, if you have like exams, like you did Gary, you know, and you have a business to run as well, like you're probably not going to get perfect sleep, you know? But it has to be in the context of, okay, over the year or over the years, ideally we want to have a period of time or like the vast majority of the time with good sleep you know like you're not coming in going like oh yeah i have you know exams coming up so my sleep is going to be you know curtailed i'm not going to have perfect sleep habits you're not going well that means for the rest of the year that i'm, I'm just going to write off sleep i'm always going to try to sleep four hours per night no when you have the chance you get your eight hours in maybe even get some more in if the opportunity is is there you know um and that's just not the case for most people. Most people will be like, yeah, I just get seven hours, six hours every single night, all year. And then maybe on the weekends, I try to catch up on it. And, you know, so sleep management, sleep practices, they need to be in place. Anyway, right. Further treatment options for PMDD, Gary, what's the story? Yeah, so firstly, I suppose it's important to note that given there are, you know, psychological uh, symptoms here that, Cognitive behavioral therapy or other psychotherapies um, may be uh, effective for some people. Okay, so it's important to consider that. You know, you might be referred for what are often referred to by GPs as talk therapies, and that's something that can be helpful. Okay, it may not be enough for everyone, but it may be helpful. All right. And the next on that, a lot of people will like poo poo that and they'll be like, oh, my doctor doesn't know fucking shit and whatever. They'll say stuff like, oh, my doctor sent me for talk therapy and I have you know, a menstrual issue. It's just a, you know, the medical sphere, they just don't understand women and stuff. And it's like, no, like this stuff helps, you know, ideally, yeah, probably it's done in conjunction with other treatment options, you know, but talk therapy helps, especially if you are having any of those like psychiatric, psychological style of, of symptoms, you know? So don't just poo-poo that. I know again, in like, especially in Ireland, like someone goes, oh yeah, I'm prescribing you some talk therapy or whatever thing. People be like, yeah, I'm not doing that you know, <laughs> and it is something that actually does help, you know, and obviously women are generally better at actually listening to their doctor and they are generally better at going to therapy when they need therapy. Whereas guys, you know, we're, we're not good at either of those things. Um, but it is something that, you know, potentially is beneficial here. Yeah. And particularly, I think when the, if you have psychological symptoms, like let's say your mood gets low and you have irrational thoughts and those types of things, and they're specific to a certain part of the cycle, then if you're engaging in therapy, then you're at least psychologically prepared for when those thoughts appear. So you can go through the um, cognitive behavioral therapy process, challenging those thoughts, challenging those irrational thoughts, um, and trying to be a bit more rational when it is difficult. And that can help uh, a lot of people. And that's sort of the the basic premise of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So um, address those cognitive delusions and that can definitely be helpful. Okay. So 
moving on from therapy, then obviously there are medical options. And first and foremost, like antidepressants or SSRIs uh, can be effective. And one of the interesting things here is that you can be prescribed SSRIs, like firstly at a relatively low dose. Okay. You don't need a very high dose, um, but you can be prescribed them for just a certain period of cycles. So sometimes they'll be prescribed just in the luteal phase. So for the second two weeks of your cycle, because that's the point at which uh, those symptoms are going to start to appear. So that can be helpful, but at the same time, sometimes it's easier to just take them continuously. You get into a routine, you take them daily. You don't have to be wondering, do I have enough for two weeks uh, in my next cycle? Um, when am I in the middle of my cycle? When should I start taking them? What if my cycle is variable, etc.? Just taking them continuously can be the preference for some women. Okay, so low-dose SSRIs can be effective. We already mentioned that um, potentially there's a relationship there between um, serotonin and serotonin neurotransmission and some of the symptoms. So SSRIs um, are effective. Okay. And you're generally taking relatively low doses and they're generally more modern, newer generation antidepressants and tend to be uh, relatively safe as a result and relatively decent uh, side effect, side effect profiles. Okay. Um, the other thing that comes into it then would be more, hormonal or contraceptive um, interventions. Okay. So the combined oral contraceptive pill would be the kind of basic first line there, uh, but you can have all other contraceptive uh, pill variations and patch variations that can be helpful um, along with things like GNRH agonists. Okay. So these are basically intending to modify the hormonal profile. So if you take any GNRH agonist, um, you're effectively inducing an artificial menopause. Okay. Because what you're doing is you're, con you're consistently uh, getting that GNRH elevation rather than the normal pulsatile GNRH secretion that tends to maintain the normal menstrual cycle. Okay. So there are your two options. Well, they're not just two options, multiple different options in there, but the first one really would be the combined oral contraceptive pill. So the first line therapies are going to be the, your, your exercise and your lifestyle, all those things that we discussed therapy, as we discussed, and then the combined oral contraceptive pill, um, or low dose SSRIs, they're going to be the basics, um, for most women. 100%. Um, and again, they are more effective than <laughs> supplements. So talk to your doctor. You know, that, we're not saying, you know, don't take any supplements. You know, we're not, not advocating that. They might be beneficial for some people, but these options are way better <laughs> in general than just some random supplement you buy online, you know? Um, but anyway, look, that's that's all we really have to discuss with this. Like, obviously we can go even further in depth and, you know, come up with some sort of exact, like, you know, processes or whatever. But in reality, the training, the nutrition, the supplementation, the lifestyle stuff, there's not much above and beyond what we generally recommend. You know, there's not much above and beyond just like getting some good exercise habits in place, getting some good dietary habits in place, getting some good sleep and stress management habits in place. Like there's not much above and beyond that uh, in terms of helping with your PMD, PMDD. And like all of that stuff does seem to help. But, you know, if this is something that's actually debilitating, which PMDD generally is, it is actually impacting on your life. Even PMS is actually impacting on your life. Like you probably want to talk to a doctor about this stuff. You know, anyway, Gary, do you have anything else to finish up on? And if not, where can people find us? 
I think that's everything. Um, where can people find us? As always, guys, you can follow us on social media at Triage Method and on our individual pages. Um, start with Instagram and you'll find the rest of what we have there. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, what else do we do? You can follow our email list or subscribe to our email list. And you can sign up for coaching, of course. That's the most important thing if you're interested in the coaching process and you'd like help, individualized help with your training and nutrition or rehab goals, then we'd be more than happy to help you, okay? Um, I'm finished my exams now. I'm taking on a couple of more clients over the summer. All of our coaches have availability. So if you'd like to work with us, now is a good time, especially if you want to get shredded, jacked, healthy, high-performing over the summer, okay? So get in touch if you're interested. Um, other than that, I don't think there's too much else that we do. Well, we do a lot of other stuff behind the scenes, but that's for a, a later stage. Anyway, I have nothing else to say, so uh, enjoy yourself, guys. <laughs>